God, thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Uh, we are uh, so thankful for that great gift. And Lord, we want to hear from you now. I pray that uh, any distractions, any things that could keep us from hearing from you, that, that you would help us to put those things aside. And God, we, we pray that you give us uh, soft hearts and ears ready to hear from you uh, this morning. We thank you again uh, for the privilege of gathering together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, my name's Tim Ophis, and I've been part of EBF for about a year now as the church planting resident. Um, I'm right now kind of in that post-vacation depression that I'm working through. I was out of town last week, went on a fishing trip with my family, and let me tell you, I love fishing. Um, I don't love fish. I don't eat them. I think it's gross. But I do love fishing. Um, So basically for me, fishing is like a petting zoo in a boat. I pull them out, and I look at them, and I you know, marvel at them, and then I put them back in. And, uh, you know, it's really, really fun for me, but it wasn't always so fun. Because growing up, my dad and my brother and I, we were terrible at catching fish. We got these lures that would have, like, lots of colors and big spoons and all sorts of, like, jangly things on them that we thought, man, these things are going to... I mean, a fish cannot possibly miss this thing in the water. But they didn't catch any fish, ever. And, uh, you know, that was a little bit depressing. We, we had this mission, right? We wanted to catch fish, but we also had this question, what do we do? How do we catch fish? Um, so our, our big breakthrough was when my brother started reading these fishing reports written by people who actually catch fish. And uh, they all kept talking about the fish that they caught using the wacky worm. Are you ready for this? We looked into this wacky worm, and you know what? We now catch tons of fish. We catch, I mean, in like two hours, we caught 20 fish uh, on our first day out this week. Uh, So it's way more fun when you're catching fish, right? You're probably wondering, what is the wacky worm? The wacky worm is literally just a a plastic worm. It looks exactly like a worm. And you hook it right in the middle. That's what makes it so wacky. There's a hook in the middle. Not on either end, just right in the middle. And, And the technique to really, you know, to really catch them is you cast it out in the water and you let it slowly sink. And apparently, that sinking motion just makes fish go bananas. And it, it's, it's almost too easy. It's embarrassing, really. I can take almost no credit for it whatsoever when we catch fish. I cast it out, let it sink, I pull it up, and there's a fish on it. It's, it really is that easy. Now, I'm bringing up this story because it relates to the ethos statement that we're going to look at today. Um, we at EBF have five ethos statements. These are who we are and who we want to be as a church. And today, we're looking at missional community. Missional community. Um, This one has been a challenge to the church in America, and it's been a challenge for me as well. Um, We're often pretty good at the community piece. We're good at gathering together often, uh, eating together, um, but we don't want to just be good at getting together, at hanging out. We want to be on mission. What is God's mission for the world? Um, His mission, he states in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all peoples. We want to join Jesus in this work of bringing people to himself and making disciples. That's the mission. So anytime I talk about mission today or being on mission, that's what I'm talking about, making disciples. But it's difficult, right? In many ways, it seems we just don't know how to do it. Like, you know, fishing with these big hunky lures. We try all these crazy things, right? Um, But similarly to fishing, there are some communities that are really nailing it. They're doing an amazing job at being missional. Uh, My brother is one of my mentors. He's a church planter in Chicago as well. And he's studied some of these different movements. And I want to share a few of their stories. First, there's this guy, Ying Kai, who's a missionary in China. 
And uh, through his disciple-making movement um, that he called Training for Trainers, one million people were baptized in China in 10 years. That's the number he claimed. But people doubted that number, so they studied it. Okay, did this guy really baptize? Did this movement really baptize a million people in 10 years? And they found out, no, no, they didn't. It wasn't true. They had actually baptized more like 2 million in 10 years uh, in China. So uh, there's another guy, Mario Vega, Uh, He is the pastor of the largest church in this hemisphere. It's called Elim. And in San Salvador, Salvador, they started 11,000 small groups. 11,000 small groups. Not only that, they planted 63 churches here in the U.S., um, spending zero total dollars, which is really, really remarkable. Uh, Another guy, David Watson, um, in primarily Hindu and Muslim context, they, they saw over 1 million people come to Christ in 14 years. All these people in groups seeing God doing amazing things in fulfilling his mission, making disciples of all people, despite often dealing with harder soil than what we've got to deal with here in America. So how do they do it? How do they do it? You could claim maybe it's just coincidence, you know, it's a unique working of the Spirit, uh, but I think there is more to it than that because they all do it differently than we do. One of the things that unifies these movements is that they let a particular passage shape how they do mission. And it's the passage we're going to look at today. It's Luke chapter 10. So if you could turn to Luke chapter 10, that's the passage we're going to look at today. These churches and disciple-making movements don't do everything the exact same way, but they draw principles from this passage that I think, uh, if we're willing to follow their example, can really help us as we seek to be a community on mission with Jesus. We want to be more effective in fulfilling the mission Jesus has given us, but how do we do it? We're going to read this in five parts, and we're going to try and answer five questions that may hinder us as we seek to be more effective. I think there's five questions that often hinder us, and we're going to try and answer those five questions as we go. First, let's look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is this. Do we really want to do this? Do we really want to do this? Um, Do we want to be on mission with with God? And the reality is, uh, often we're we're not that interested in joining God on a mission. I'd rather watch Netflix, you know? Uh, But it's it's really, really important that we consider this question. Um, Being on mission as a community is not something that Jesus just envisioned for kind of like the the top-tier mega-disciples. Jesus sends out... 72 disciples, and we're only in Luke 10 here. He doesn't just send out the 12 disciples, kind of like the guys that we look up to and say, man, those those are the real ones, you know, they're doing it. 72 he sends out. This is for anyone who's really following Jesus seriously at this point. Mission is for us. Mission is for me and you. The reason I think that many of us aren't interested always in following Jesus on mission is, frankly, it's hard. Jesus' sales pitch is not one that most of us would jump at. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That's, that's bad news. That does not exactly fire me up. Um, 
It means it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be challenging. Uh, and Jesus wants us to know that up front. But keep in mind, any mission, anything worth doing is going to be hard. There's no exception to that. Anything really worth doing is going to be hard. Jesus also says here that the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. He's likening this to harvesting. Um, and harvesting, especially in those days, was really, really difficult. It might be a little easier now. We've got massive combines and things that can help the job. But even still, it's grueling. It's time-sensitive work. Um, but there is a harvest ready. There are people ready to accept Jesus. There is a harvest ready if there were only laborers to join in the work. That's what Jesus is saying. He needs people who are willing to do the difficult work of harvesting for his kingdom. And he's asking that of us. So what are we, what are we to do? Um, what, what do we do? Jesus gives us one answer in this uh, verse, verse 2. He says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If you're finding yourself this morning not really interested in, in this job, you know, if you're trying to follow Jesus but you're, you're not really feeling joining him on mission, I would encourage you to, to pray for yourself first. Um, if you're a Christian and you don't want to join him in his mission, that, that should trouble you. Um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Jesus envisioned this for all of us. This is something we're called to be a part of. Ask God to give you a burden and a passion for what he cares about, uh, for being part of this mission. Jesus loves to answer that prayer when you ask him to give him a burden and a passion for the things he cares about. But if the mission of God is exciting to you, if you're already in, you want in, you want to be a part of it, prayer is also where you should start. Um, pray for more laborers to become a, a part of of uh, bringing in the harvest. All of these movements that I mentioned earlier, they, they are radically committed to prayer. Powerful evangelistic movements are fueled by prayer. Um, amazingly, I, I love this. Some of these disciple-making movements actually make one of their only staff positions a full-time prayer coordinator. So uh, there's a, a group called Cristo Centro in Cuba. It's a church planting network, and it's got three people on staff, a president, a vice president, and a full-time prayer coordinator. I think that is awesome. And uh, you know what? They, they see amazing things happen as they're committed to praying. Um, I once heard a pastor say, your ministry will never outgrow your prayer life. And I think that's true. It's really convicting to me. Um, I want to be someone who's so connected to God, you know, who's calling out to him all the time, but I am not where I want to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm not there yet. Praying for laborers is the kind of prayer that Jesus loves to answer. Um, in our, our second ethos statement, abiding worship, uh, Pastor Jason talked about that, that there are certain prayers that, that God wants to answer exactly the way you pray them. And I, I think this is one of them. So let's call out to him about this and, and see what he does. All right, let's read our next section, verses 3 through 12. We'll read verse 3 again. Um, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, 
Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. All right, the next question we're going to look at. If you decide you want to join God in his mission to make disciples, how should you do it? How should you do it? We're going to spend most of our time on this question. And here's where many of these disciple-making movements differ from my own tendency and from uh, the tendency of many churches in the U.S. This passage informs uh, a lot of the how-to, how they actually pursue this. So we're going to see how this passage shapes the way that they uh, do mission. Lest you think we're just called to pray, Jesus does say, go, I'm sending you. And uh, then he tells them, don't bring anything, don't talk to anyone on the way. There's a clear sense of urgency. He wants them to be single-minded. Don't get distracted with chit-chat. You know, I, I, I kind of love small talk. Jesus says, on the road, don't get distracted with that. You've got a mission. You've got to stay, stay the course. Stay focused on that. And their focus is to find a son of peace. Take a look again at verses 5 and 6. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. When I first read this, it sounded to me like you were supposed to kind of just give a greeting, like, peace, bros, you know, just peace, you know. I, I clearly, that's not my go-to um, greeting, as you might be able to tell. But uh, peace here is, is, is more than a greeting. In verse 6, it's something that can be, like, transmitted. It's, it's something that can be possessed or returned. That, that's not a normal greeting. Peace here is referring to God's peace. It's referring to salvation, they're looking for someone who's ready to come under the kingdom of God, who's ready to, to follow God as Lord. They're looking for a son of peace. And if they find this person of peace, they're to stay with them, eat and drink what they provide. They're not to immediately leave them, but build into them, spend time with that person. So what does this mean for us? Those who follow the example of Luke 10 uh, are really focused not on finding the many, but on finding the one. They're looking for the person of peace. This is a person who God has prepared already to respond to the gospel, the good news, and who's going to open up doors to others. Uh, they're asking the question, you know, who is this person of peace that we can start with who's ready to receive the good news and who's going to help us find others? Uh, these groups don't see all the work as having to be done by them. They see the work as being done by those that they empower to then go in and do mission. That's going to mean sowing a lot of seeds, maybe more than we're used to. That means sharing with a lot of people um, and not getting hung up on someone who is simply not interested in the message that we bring. Typically, when I've thought of evangelism, uh, I think of having to do this difficult task of like persuading someone to do something that they don't really want to do. Um, but looking for a person of peace is different. It's acknowledging that God is already at work in people. I love this phrase. I heard this quote, ripe fruit doesn't have to be yanked. Ripe fruit doesn't have to be yanked. The harvest is plenty. The, the, the fields are ripe with harvest. There really are people ready to respond to the good news of Jesus. Um, some of you might have stories like this. Maybe this was the case with you, or maybe you've shared the good news with someone, and they just embraced it with joy. It was like fishing with a wacky worm, right? It was so easy. They, just, they, were, they were excited. They wanted in. Um, that's because God's been at work in their lives. So I worked at Barnes & Noble for a little while, and our mission at Barnes & Noble was to sell a membership to you. That was our mission. And I was straight awful at it. Um, they actually tracked it. They called it your conversion rate, interestingly. Um, 
And uh, I was like one out of every 100 persons that came up to the register. I was really terrible at it. They wanted it to be like two out of 50 or something like that. But you know when I could sell a membership was when someone was already ready to buy one. When I was in the right place at the right time, I was awesome at selling memberships. When they asked, you know, I brought it up and they were like, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. That sounds great. Um, it, I didn't have to work super hard to convince those people. And the only way I could find those people is if I told it to everyone, if I told everyone about the membership. You know, if I took some people off, I might miss, I might miss my opportunity. Um, so how much more when we do this with the life-giving good news of Jesus? where Jesus is actually at work in people's lives. How much more are we going to see fruit uh, than just trying to sell a membership at a bookstore? This, to me, is, is so freeing to me. Um, you know, there's some people in my life that I'm, I'm really close to, and I'm always going to keep sharing with them. Uh, but in general, the idea of kind of focusing my efforts on people who are interested, trying to find a person of peace, someone who's ready, who God has prepared, that changes the game for me. That, to me, is exciting to remember that God is at work in the lives of people. And my job is to just find those who are, are ripe for the harvest. Um, those who aren't ready, I continue to pray for. You know, I've found that most of those people who are really resistant to it, they're not argued into the kingdom. They're not argued. Uh, you can't twist their arm uh, to, to have them join you. But they, they can be prayed in often. I know a lot of stories of people who feel like, boy, I had a praying mother, you know, and that's why I'm here today. So continue to commit to praying for those people. But uh, Ying Kai's training for trainers, I, I really love how he does it. He has you pray uh, each week and ask God, who, who are the people in my lives that, that are persons of peace? Who are those people that might be ready if I were to just share with them? I love that prayer. That's a, a great one to ask. Um, David Watson's organization, I shared about him earlier. They've really embraced this idea. They have some amazing stories uh, of, of finding persons of peace. So he was really discouraged because... Uh, they had found that uh, there was like a, a stretch of time where several of their missionaries had been killed. And he was ready to kind of throw in the towel, like, you know, I, I'm a businessman, I could do something else. But he felt God lead him to this passage, Luke 10, and zeroed in on that idea of a person of peace. So they said, okay, let's, let's find a person of peace. We'll literally go into a town with two people and try and find a person of peace. So they prayed about it. They had no idea how they're going to find someone. And amazingly, people would come to them who said, I had a dream that I'm supposed to receive you, that I'm supposed to hear what you have to say. That blows my mind. That's the God we're talking about. He can do that work. There's stories like that all over the Muslim world. It's amazing. And it really, really happens. That's, that's the God that we're serving, and he can do that. Um, and of course, they, they saw over one million ultimately come to Christ in 14 years. All right, let's keep going. Verse 9 says uh, more, a, little, a little bit more about the content of what we share. It says, heal the sick in the town and, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Uh, I used to hear that phrase, kingdom of God, and kind of just replace it with heaven. I, think, I thought it was just a straight synonym for heaven, but it's bigger than that. Uh, the idea is anywhere that God is king. That's, that's, uh, it's the rule or the reign of God. That's how you could kind of think of that phrase, the kingdom of God, the, the rule or reign of God. And of course, that is in heaven, right? He is king in heaven, but he's also becoming king here on earth. And he's showing people what it looks like. He heals the sick, and he says, this is what it looks like when God is king. When God is king, wholeness is restored. Things that are broken are, are, are made uh, whole again. And of course, uh, the, the, the greatest thing that's broken is your 
relationship to this king. You can be reconciled to Jesus himself. He's offered terms of peace through his life, his death, and resurrection. And I think that's a helpful way to explain the good news to someone, to tell them how Jesus' kingdom came near to your own life, uh, how you saw him become the king and the Lord of your life and, and repair something broken and make something new. That is really, really compelling to people. Um, I, I think I often want to be evangelistic without having to share something. You know, I want to be evangelistic by just showing with my, my life. Like, just, just look at my life and hopefully you'll, you'll see that Jesus is Lord. But we've got to share. We've got to tell people this good news. This good news has to, to be heard. Um, we've got a message to share. And I want to encourage all of us to, to be committed to finding ways to sharing that. I see this bit about healing the sick and it kind of freaks me out. Um, to be honest, I'm like, I, I don't want to pray for that. Usually I pray for doctors, uh, that God would guide their hand, but I don't usually pray for healing. Um, it makes me a little nervous. But globally, Christians do see this as directive to them as well. They will pray for healing, that God would heal people. And often it's an amazing way that God opens the door to a person of peace because he is big enough to do this. And I think it takes a level of boldness to, to go out in faith and pray for that. But I would encourage us, as we pursue this mission, pray for the healing of sick. You know, that, that's, that's something that we at EBF want to take seriously. And as we take a time of communion later on in the service, our elders are going to be on the sides of the room, and they'll be ready to pray for healing, whether physical or emotional or, or, or otherwise. And I'd really encourage you uh, to, to take advantage of that. Let's, let's take God at his word and, and pray for these things and see what he does. Whether someone accepts this message or rejects it, Jesus says that the kingdom has come near to them either way, whether through peace or through judgment. That's what he explains in verses 10 and 11. That's how serious this work is that we're engaged in. We cannot control uh, how people are going to respond, but we know that we're bringing the rule of God to bear in their lives either way. All right, let's continue. Let's read verses 13 to 16. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. One fear that you might have uh, as we join Jesus on mission is, well, what if people say no? What if someone says no? I can't, I can't handle rejection. I don't like that. Um, I, I'm, I'm there. I don't like that either. Um, but it's, it's important to remember that uh, this is not really about us. The mission is not about you, and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. We're Jesus' ambassadors, he has sent us to make his appeal through us. So if you're rejected, that's all right. It's not really you that they're rejecting. It's, it's Jesus. Jesus is with you. He's backing you. You can lean on him as you pursue his mission. And I, I think it can even shape the way that we share to remember we're bringing a message from God. <laughs> There's, I'm immediately thinking of, uh, what is that, Blues Brothers? But don't, don't go there. Um, you are bringing a message of, from God, and that is... Uh, that, can, that can shape the way that we share. All right, we're going to look at the next section, verses 17 to 24. 
The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's look at this fourth question, and it's a big one. So you might be thinking, what makes you think I would ever actually do this? What makes you think I would ever do this? You know, I've tried resolutions before and they've failed. How am I actually going to pull this off? In this section, we see the 72 all come back together after the mission. There's accountability. Accountability is extremely important in pursuing the mission. Um, It's why Jesus sent them out in pairs in the first place. And it's why our, our ethos statement isn't just mission. It's missional community. Um, We cannot do this alone. We need each other. When we think of evangelism, we often think of fishing. Uh, You know, we think of that lone guy fishing with the wacky worm, just reeling it in. But when Jesus was talking to fishermen, he was talking to groups of people uh, who fished together. They were using these huge nets. It wasn't something you could do by yourself. You needed to do it with others. It was communal in nature. And the same is true for us. I think mission is communal. We need to do it together. There's so many things that I don't want to do, and I won't do them unless someone does them with me. So Abby and I, uh, my wife and I recently started running, and uh, we had run before. I would run when you know, a bee was chasing me or something, but now, now I'm trying to run for fun. And there were many days when I just did not want to run, uh, but Abby did, and she'd be like, we, sh- we should do this, and then I'd be like, all right, fine, we'll do it. And then other days where I was feeling it, I'm like, I'm going to be fast, four-minute mile, this is happening. Um, And it did not happen. But, you know, and Abby didn't want to do it, but she would do it. So together, when you go, when you, when you pursue a mission together, good things happen. Um, And I, I'm just encouraged by that, that I can share with other people. It doesn't have to be me alone. I can go with someone else. You know, if there's a neighbor or somebody that I want to share with, bring a friend. You know, you you don't have to go it alone. We're not meant to go it alone. Um, Many of these churches who see Luke 10 as kind of informing how they do mission, Um, They build accountability into their small groups. So they'll start the group by asking, you know, who are you praying for? Who have you been sharing with? And then they'll end by making goals. Who are you going to pray for? And who are you planning to share with next week? And uh, then they they celebrate together when God does great things. Um, that, That sense of accountability is really, really crucial in making it really happen. So next month, uh, EBF's ethos communities are going to be starting back up. And it's our hope that these groups would not just be community groups, but that they would be missional communities. And if you're not yet part of one of these, um, and these ideas are kind of stirring something in you, I would really, really encourage you, be on the lookout for those groups and become part of one of those ethos communities. To have fellowship with other believers who can hold you accountable, uh, who can celebrate with you when God does great things, is so, so helpful in really realizing this and making this a reality in your life. All right, we're going to look at the final section, verses 21 to 24. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Finally, let's look at one more question. What is the result of living like this? What is the result of living a life like this? One of the most beautiful results that comes of li- from living a life like this is that it brings joy to Jesus. It brings joy to Jesus. This is one of the, the, the most deep expressions of joy that we see from Jesus in Luke. He is seeing uh, people joining him in his mission as they're seeking uh, his kingdom, and they're starting to get it, and that brings him so much joy. There is joy in heaven when we lead a person to Jesus. And it's going to bring us joy too. If you're hungry for, for more genuine joy this morning, join God in his mission. That, that's me right now. I think uh, on, on vacation, I kind of get into this mode where life is about me, and I need to get out of that. It makes me happy for a little while, and then it leaves me wanting. And uh, this is really helpful for me to remember. You know, I've got a mission. My life as a follower of Jesus is to uh, tell people about him and bring people to him. Now, if you want in, if you're thinking, all right, uh, this sounds exciting to me. If you want in, join us in the church plant in North Park. That's my encouragement to you. I would encourage you to join us because we're going to go for it. Uh, What we've talked about here today, seeking people of peace, telling people about the kingdom of God, holding one another accountable, we're going to be building this into our small groups, um, and the first of which is going to be starting next month along with the other ethos communities. And a great first step If you're at all interested, please come to that vision lunch next week. Um, It'll be brief. I'm providing delicious food. Uh, Sweet Baby Ray is a believer. I met him uh, last year, and uh, he wants to support the church plant, so he is paying for food for all of us. Um, It's going to be tasty. So I'd encourage you, even if you have bad motivations and you just want to eat barbecue, come, and uh, you'll you'll get to hear about the mission a little bit more. I want as many people as possible to hear about what we're hoping to do, and I would love for you to be part of the work that we're hoping to do in North Park. We want to bring joy to Jesus, and uh, we believe that pursuing this is going to do that. As we close, uh, I want to share a story uh, from NPR's This American Life. They've got an episode called Choosing Wrong. Uh, It talks about Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain is like one of the greatest basketball players of all time, if not the greatest, The guy averaged over 50 points in a game, in a season. In one game, he actually scored 100 points. Uh, Normally, Wilt was a terrible free throw shooter. But in this game where he scored 100 points, he shot 28 for 32 from the free throw line. That's amazing, right? Are you wondering how he did it? He shot them all granny style, every single one of them. And he made 28 of 32 free throws. But he stopped because he felt like he, he looked like a loser. He didn't want to do it. So he just stopped. Instead, he chose to be a bad free throw shooter. One of the greatest free throw shooters of all time is this guy, Rick Barry. He made 90% of his free throws over his career. And in one season, he only missed nine total free throws in the entire year. How did he do it? He shot them all granny style, every single one. Um, and he's offered to work with guys who stink at shooting free throws. Uh, He worked with Shaq, who is a notoriously awful free-throw shooter, and this is what Shaq told him. I will shoot negative 30% before I shoot granny style. (laughs) 
I don't want that to be me when it comes to the mission of God. Think about how much greater Shaq could have been if you couldn't just send him to the free throw line. And then he'd, you know, he'd miss whatever. I don't even know what his percentage is. It's, it's awful. But think about how great he would have been if he just would have shot underhand. Uh, I, I, I've not seen the kind of fruit uh, in terms of making disciples that other people have seen, other brothers and sisters throughout the world. And they let this passage inform how they do mission. I want to be willing to do something different. Even if it isn't the norm for me, even if it feels strange, I want to go for it. When I die and see Jesus, I want him to look at me and say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. I hope I will have brought him great joy as I labored in the harvest. And I hope you want that too, that you'll join me in striving to be a part of truly missional community. Let's pray. Lord, we are uh, so thankful for you that you have intervened in our lives, that you've um, brought good news to us through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would help us to, to grow in this area of making disciples. We want to be effective in reaching people who don't know you. We want to join you in your mission, God, and I pray that you would help us as we pursue this. Um, Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray that you'd continue to stir in us, that you would lead us to the things that you want us to do in response to your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.